Welcome to the Insight Podcast. Joining me on the show today is Vincent Deary. Vincent is Professor of Applied Health Psychology at Northumbria University and author of How We Break, Navigating the Wear and Tear of Living. I talked to Vincent about fatigue, how he defines fatigue and how common it is, the ways fatigue presents itself and how it impacts on our mental and emotional health, how modern day expectations and our upbringing can contribute to the ways we handle life's challenges, Vincent's thoughts on resilience training, why we must separate our worth from our work, other ways you can avoid and recover from fatigue, and much more. Enjoy the episode. How many people are affected by fatigue? I'm going to slightly fudge the answer, yeah. Sam, and say it depends which country you look at, depends which survey you do, but we can look at the shape of the distribution of fatigue. So an uh, old friend and colleague of mine, Trudy Childer, back in the 90s, did a big epidemiological survey of fatigue in the community. Just ask people on a questionnaire, how tired are you? And what shows up is it's the kind of classic bell curve. Mm. So a, a few people are not tired at all. A lot of us are a bit tired a lot of the time. And again, there's some of us who are so exhausted and worn out that we can no longer cope. So it's got that kind of classic distribution. So the short answer is we're all a bit tired. And I certainly see that in my friends and colleagues. You know, if you ask people how they are these days, generally the first two answers are, are busy and tired. I put my hand up to both of them. It's true. And so where does that general tiredness, um, when does it creep, creep into fatigue? What actually defines fatigue and makes it different from this? When would you, you know, give someone that label of, yeah, of yeah. a fatigued person? It's an interesting question, and it's part of the motivation uh, behind the book is thinking about when do we cross the clinical line? When do we end up either needing a diagnosis or getting one or ending up in front of a clinician like me? Because uh, I work or worked, I've, I've recently retired from the NHS, I worked in a transdiagnostic fatigue clinic where we saw people with fatigue of all causes. So whether your primary condition was cancer or post-cancer treatment or autoimmune conditions or liver disease, they are often all associated with fatigue. So you could come and see us to help you manage your fatigue, us being a consultant, an occupational therapist, mm -hmm. a physiotherapist, and me, a health psychologist. And put it this way, I saw people in the clinic who were still managing to function, but they needed someone to help them manage their energy. I've seen some colleagues who are possibly more worn out than people I saw in the clinic, but who have never crossed the clinical line and are trying to manage themselves. So in some way, it's always going to come down on a case-to-case -case mm. basis when the tiredness becomes so problematic that it becomes fatigue and the fatigue becomes chronic and exhausting. So that is one way to look at it is on that continuum from that when you're beginning to go over the bell curve into the extreme 
And th there's a line there that some people will cross where they're going to need professional help. And then there's a, then there's a whole debate, which I, I don't know if it's worth getting into around when is something like long COVID or post-viral fatigue or chronic fatigue syndrome. These defined syndromes where fatigue is central to them, but they're kind of conditions with diagnostic criteria in themselves. Whereas what I'm trying to do in the book is look at kind of just what happens to you and me in life when we just get pushed to our limits and exhaustion is often one of the signs of that and we kind of know it in ourselves when there's no there's no sense of recovery there's no sense of the batteries being recharged we're just constantly running on either depleted or empty that's the kind of problematic exhaustion mm. that i'm talking about and you also talk about in the book how it presents itself kind of the differences and similarities with other kind of conditions. I mean, the difference between uh, fatigue and depression and other things. Like, can you speak to a, a bit of yeah. that? Like, how, I suppose, how are we, how can one recognize it in themselves and one recognize it in their colleagues or loved ones, whoever it is, and, and think, okay, they might be giving themselves uh, a label and saying, this is what's going on. And, and actually, if, if they spoke yeah, to yeah, you, yeah. you'd be able to say, well, no, actually, like, this is a sign that maybe you are running on empty, kind of. Yeah, in a way, I, I think the the easiest way to think about it is in terms of body, heart, and mind. Uh, so, and, and that's a trilogy I come back to in the book. Uh, and it's a trilogy you see running under, say, Platonic philosophy. You see it in modern psychology, where it shows up as physiology, cognition, and behaviour. But it, it, they're all looking at the fact that we are kind of interacting systems, physiological systems, emotional systems, and cognitive symbolic systems. So the easiest way to think about fatigue in a way is, is the depletion of the physical. Right. It's just it's purely energy running out of the tank like a battery uh, running uh, down to empty. So I, I think that is a useful way to distinguish fatigue from say depression fatigue is often a feature of depression but in depression you've also got involvement of the the heart and mind the the the, the emotions and the self-evaluation so you, you will find the difficult self-relationship in depression that you don't necessarily get in fatigue so people thinking badly mm -hmm. of themselves having really low moods having struggles with self-worth and you you can you can get a bit of that in fatigue, but if you get too much of that added, I think that's when fatigue begins to become something more complex and something that looks more like depression. So, yeah, I think just that sheer physical depletion. But the flip side of that is if you're going through a really hard time in your life and things are going on for too long, your low energy might be the first thing that you'll notice, but if that goes on for long enough, probably your mood, your self-worth will begin to become implicated. And that's another message in the book, that these systems kind of communicate with each other. And it's very rare that you see a, a, a kind of single symptom in the wild, it, if you like. So I'd, I would routinely be helping people manage some of the, the frustrations, the anxieties that come along with being fatigued in, in the fatigue mm -hmm. clinic. Because I mean, we know more and more now, don't we, the, the link between body and mind and that we just can't separate the two at all. So when you're talking about how if we start to feel low energy and 
you just can't bring yourself to be doing that walk or the run or the workout, yes. then of course that will then start to have knock-on yeah. effects into our the mental health, won't Absolutely. it? And so interesting. Yeah. But so the, the uh, on just purely the physical side then, um, yeah. we're talking low energy, but what, what is that? I don't know. I'm trying to think what, what that can look like in a person other than the obvious, you know, speaking to a specialist like yourself, or is yeah, it yeah, just yeah. the, just, you know, that self-reported, I'm finding well, well, it hard to do x y and z there is i think in a way you're right it is a bit like pain that the old dictum in pain clinics is pain is whatever the person says it is and it's kind of like that with fatigue in a way as well but i think if we begin to look under the hood a little bit and think about some of the physiology behind it if you think of the way that you need to gear up to say do your day's work or we were probably doing before this to do this podcast. We're going into a slightly higher register of ourselves. We're coming out of a resting state. And so we're going to be more sympathetically activated Mm -hmm. in terms of the sympathetic nervous system, what I call the on system in the book. So we'll be gearing up uh, a gear or two, which is a good thing. It's really good to be able to do that. And that adjusting to challenge, adjusting to doing something new, or adjusting to say a heavy workload is what we call allostasis. So it's so it's that process of being in a constant state of challenge and adjustment, and that's great. It's why we can do all the great things that we do in life. It's why we can achieve what we need to achieve. But that system also needs to be able to gear down. You need to be able to switch into rest and recovery, and if you don't switch into rest and recovery, you begin to get what they call in health psychology, allostatic load. Whereas if your on systems are on too much, you begin to get low energy, but you will get, it will affect your immune system. It will affect your sleep. It will affect inflammatory processes, probably affect your digestion. If it goes on for long enough, it will affect your cardiovascular system. So it just means your system, like driving a car too fast, too long, it will begin to shudder. It's what, it's what I talk about in the book is sort of trembling uh, that, that can precede the breaking. And again, we're built to be able to shudder a bit, but if you're shuddering for too long, you'll find it shows up as tiredness, as dysregulation, as feeling perhaps you're, uh, that balance between on and off will become more and more difficult. You find you can't really mm-hmm. switch off anymore. People become what is often called tired but wired so they're constantly on even when they know they want to be off so it's that kind of quite holistic wearing out of us as a physiological system that will affect every part of the interlocking systems that comprise us and and that's just looking at it physiologically you add to that the fact that you might get brain fog it'll be more difficult to concentrate you're going to be more hypervigilant so you're going to feel a bit more anxious. So you get that kind of triumvirate of body, heart, and mind all being in too high gear for too long. And I think we all know how that feels. It, it can feel okay for a bit. It can feel quite exhilarating. But if there isn't the off, then that's we, we kind of know when we're getting worn out, I think. Or certainly I do. <laughs> I had to learn the hard way. I think... Yeah, sometimes we don't really know the brick wall is there until we hit it. But once we've hit it a few times, we begin to get a sense of what our limits feel like. I was about to say, I'm sure people listening can resonate with that. Just 
that background cogs always turning and you just feel like mm. you, you can't switch off. And you talked about how you've experienced that and you learned the hard way. I mean, feel free to speak more about that if, if, if you think it's kind of relevant for a bit of context and the, yeah, I mean, one of the things I tried to do in the book, so we've been just using some of the, the signs to try to get into the book around allostatic load, around the nervous system, about the, the different ways that we can be on and off. And uh, and I wanted to bring that to life by also applying it to cases yeah. uh, and real cases, not just people who I saw in the clinic, though there is a sort of fictionalized patient uh, at, at, at the heart of uh, a couple of the chapters, but also just in myself and my family and my friends, because I don't know about you, but it seems over the last 10 years, everybody's struggled uh, that I know of to some degree. And I wanted to capture that by bringing in ordinary cases of ordinary suffering and struggling, me being one of them, uh, because there was about a year where it was partly post-virally, but if I look back, I can see just an accumulation of difficult life events, really pushing myself at work. I was just functioning at too close to my limit for too long. And then I did get a virus, and then my system just collapsed. And it was kind of ironic because I had to do what I'd been helping people to do in the fatigue clinic for the last 10 years, and it's a lot easier to tell other people what to do that it is I was say, to do it yeah, for yourself. Are you good at following your yeah. own advice or not? Oh, of course <laughs> not. We never are. <laughs> but again, I think it, it can be the weird flip side of those kind of experiences. You do learn more about yourself. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the key lessons I've learned is to be gentler with myself and to acknowledge my vulnerabilities and limits and to be open about them because right? there was a certain degree of shame telling my colleagues who in the field of fatigue actually yeah, this isn't supposed to happen to me I'm kind of yeah I'm worn out yeah uh, but yeah it happens and I, again I've seen it happen or some versions of that similar versions happen in friends and colleagues mm. as well so a couple of things you mentioned about um always being on the go and how that could affect you know, sleep immune system. And so I kind of want to immediately mm. jump into, well, how do we solve it then? Like, what, what can I put in place? But I'm going to hold back a little bit because I want to kind of talk more about that, that you're, that, that you've mentioned the, the different factors that can, can, um, mm. are at play here and the gradual buildup of, of things that can then lead to, um, fatigue and exhaustion and just, being worn down. Um, yeah. I mean, in, in, you in your book, you, you talk quite openly about um, your upbringing and uh, family mm -hmm. and your mother and, and other people that you know and kind of use that as examples of um, how, how, our, how our past and how our childhood can all contribute, can't it, to how we're feeling and how we handle life's challenges as an adult. But you also talk about the, the expectations we have in the modern world um, you, you, there's this other phrase that comes up as well, the ambient hum of menace, which of course it stands out so well, doesn't it? Um, yeah. So I'm just, I'm interested before we get into the, the, the solution side of things, just um, mm. more around that, you know, how, how is it that childhood can affect um, my ability to, to deal with life challenges and as an adult, um, what else would you say about the expectations of, of modern life and how this is all kind of coming into this, this big pot in the middle of, of, 
people feeling more worn out, like you said, in the last 10 years, just find Absolutely. it more difficult to cope. So one of the things I've learned from observing friends, colleagues, research participants and patients in the clinic, and there's been quite a wide range of them over the over the last couple of decades, actually, because I've been doing either clinical work or research for quite a long time now, is that no matter what we were studying, be it uh, Sjogren's disease, which is an autoimmune condition, uh, people in recovery from head and neck cancer, or fear of falling in older adults, or just commoner garden anxieties in friends or colleagues or clients, is whatever the label, no two cases were the same. That if you kind of lifted up the the diagnostic hood, as it were, that the, the mechanism keeping it going uh, was totally different in each case. Of course, there were family similarities. Like I use the example in the book about my social anxiety and my daughter's social anxiety. And there's a big vein of social anxiety running through my family. You can kind of see the genetic influence there. Uh, but it shows up slightly differently in every individual. So for my daughter, Vicky, she she's much more sociable and extrovert than me, likes being around people, is very good at dinner parties, but finds like public speaking or being out in public makes her very self-conscious. Whereas I can stand up in front of hundreds of people and speak relatively easily, but stick me at a dinner party and I become acutely uncomfortable. It's, it's like hell is, uh, hell is other people at dinner parties for me. So we we both would kind of deserve the label social anxiety. We both learned to deal with it, but we've had to deal with it in slightly different ways because it shows up slightly differently in e each of our cases. So th that's the long answer to say what I'm trying to do by showing these different cases and looking at people's early experience is to to use uh, Henry James's phrase: "We've each got our own terrible algebra." of suffering. There's different factors that make up the equation of why some of us struggle and why we don't. But that doesn't mean we can't say stuff in common. So I use both my own case and my mum's case of being born into an environment where you don't really fit very well when you're young. So I was what we would probably call these days maybe a visibly queer kid. I didn't fit in with working class Scottish culture in the 1970s. My mum was an enormous personality born into a very constrictive working class Scottish mid-20th century culture with really stifling expectations of both gender and class that, she, that, that just totally confined and in the end rather, yeah, made her life very difficult. And what I wanted to show in those cases is that when you don't fit, you're given back to yourself as work. So that you have to be, you have to think about yourself more. You have to have more difficult feelings. You have to learn to manage those feelings. You have to learn to manage difficult social situations. So I was kind of isolated, bullied, found it really difficult to get on with other people. It's a difficult beginning, but in a way you begin to learn more about yourself as a creature and how to manage yourself in a way that, as I grew up as an adult, has probably become a strength. But those early days definitely still run under this adult frame. So I'm still more hypervigilant. I'm still more threat sensitive. And you could see that running through my mum's uh, adult life as well. So I'm talking a bit 
in the book about how both the genetics and the early experience of us can make us more threat sensitive, more prone to getting worn out, more prone to being on and not being able to switch off and to to look at it in terms of different cases in different environments. So that's some of the stuff in the early chapters in the book. In the in later chapters, I, I look at what you call the, or what I called the ambient hum of menace. And I've got to admit that is a steal. It's a headline from a New Yorker article uh, talking about someone who became a victim of trawling. And the the, the victim of, uh, she, I think it was the Gamergate conspiracy, which is a whole other subject. But essentially, she became one of these people who the, the internet turned on for a while. And it really had a massive effect on her. So she talked about that even when she was kind of okay at home, there was just this ambient hum of knowing that she was the object of malevolent scrutiny was always there. So I kind of steal that phrase to to get us to think about our physiology of stress and our sensitivity to the environments we're in. So some of the more commoner garden examples I use are like audit culture at work. So uh, I think uh, you work as a teacher, yeah, partly, that's right, Sam. Yeah. And yeah, and I work in both academia and the NHS. And I've worked in them long enough to see that the way we get audited, performance reviewed, the way we have to continually prove our worth and the way you're only as good as your worst moment and you have to keep constantly reproving that, that is not just a, a, a kind of cognitive burden. It's a physiological stressor. Mm. It, it, it raises that background hum of, can I, ever really, can I ever really switch off? Is it safe to feel okay? Because the implicit message of a lot of audit culture is, actually, you're not quite good enough and you need to try harder. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and I, th- that's something I see in all my colleagues, most of whom are really, really conscientious and are trying their absolute best. But with that implicit or quite explicit sense, actually, can you do a bit more and can you do it with less? And particularly during the, the time of austerity, that do more with less mantra that kind of decimated the public sector, I think it showed up in people's bodies. I think a lot of us got worn out and I saw a lot of colleagues leave, become ill. I saw patients get affected by it. So, yeah, it's that kind of ambient hum of menace. And I'm trying to give the readers a sense of have a look at your own life, have a look at those stresses. They may be work-related or you may live in a difficult environment or you may live in a difficult relationship or you may be... Uh, so one of the examples, one of the cases in the book is someone very close to me. I've changed their name, called him Sammy in the book, who is a uh, zero-hours contract agency care worker who was keeping us all going during the pandemic and really doing the frontline, very difficult caring stuff, but was just subject to such difficulty that uh, that sometimes I wondered how he kept going and how he kept us going because he uh, from South India so he would not often but he would sometimes get really difficult racist attacks from uh, from either walking in some of the, the dodgier bits of lo- locale or even occasionally from patients who didn't want to be treated by uh, someone of his colour. 
So his background level of difficulty, that ambient hum of menace, was just louder for him than it would be for uh, some other people in the same situation. So again, I'm trying to get people to tune into what are the factors that make you more hypervigilant, more worried, more unable to switch off? How difficult is it for you to feel safe? Those are the kind of factors that I enumerate in thinking about what was the background tone of your life like on a daily basis? Yeah. I, I think you saw my yeah. reaction in some a couple of the sentences that you said, and it, it was because I kind of got goosebumps because you know when someone says something and it just resonates so, so heavily with you that you just kind of, like, I just, like, you just, oh, I don't know, I can't even explain it very well. Um, but, you know, when you talked about the the how our work is linked to our worth. And I think anytime I speak to someone and they bring up worth and shame and like, it always really strikes a chord with me. Um, so I don't want to go too off on a tangent at all here, but I just think it's, it's such an important thing to bring up this, how our yeah. worth has been so inextricably, inextricably, am I using the right word there? You Great. are, yeah. <laughs> I'm supposed to be the professional here, but anyway, um, linked to our work and that, yeah, if we're not, um, yes. If we're not performing and we're not being productive and we're not you know, ticking all these boxes, then then we are not worthy. And we have to keep um we, we just keep playing the game with everyone, don't we? We we try and like show yes. off to everyone how productive we're being. And you mentioned before how everyone when we, when you say how are you, um lots of people respond with I'm I'm tired. And it's like it's almost I'm like busy. that's a signal, isn't it? I'm signal because I'm tired kind of a, a little yeah. subtle hint of I'm, maybe I'm more tired than you because I've been working harder than you look at look at my worth I'm I'm, I'm putting back and I think you know a big big um, revelation for me in the past five years or so is that my worth is not linked to how productive I am and it's absolutely okay to relax every so often and it's absolutely okay to cut corners <laughs> it's absolutely okay to try and work less work smarter not harder yes but but we but it's hard yeah. isn't it because like you said we've got this kind of this this uh this environment that rewards like going the extra mile and staying a bit later doing something that's not yes. in your contract and and like so of course this is what is going to lead to people burning out and then having to take time off and Oh, man, I just, I, I mean, what can we, what can we do about it? How, how are you ever going to change that culture and that attitude? Just by, I mean, yeah, I thought that was really spot on, Sam, because it's that it's that uncoupling of your value and your self worth with your productivity, trying to uncouple them, and they've got this magnetic pull back to each other, though, don't they? It's a really different. You almost have to keep reminding yourself that you're kind of okay as you are. And I think recognizing that is one of the first things we can mm. do. Because, sort of almost paradoxically, one of the things that I learned working with people who were worn out over the last 10 years is that they often struggled more with rest than they did with activity. So I was sometimes seeing people who were still able to work and what they were really struggling to do was, like you said, give themselves permission to truly switch off and go into recovery and, and, and more than recovery to revitalize themselves because they saw that as 
as, as weak or you shouldn't need to rest or rest needed to be earned and they hadn't been productive enough. So how could they justify resting or they hadn't? I think we all have this one to a degree. I will rest once I finish yeah. the work. And, and that rest is just a sort of punctuation mark between periods of labor. And th there is none of that sense that rest is a, a skill. It's an activity. It's something that has its own value. And we, I think that is very countercultural because we're so focused on productivity, I think. So, yeah, I think recognizing it and then actually leaning, recognizing that coupling and uncoupling of value and productivity and leaning into that sense of I'm enough as I am. What would it be like to actually look after this rather than push it to its limits? <laughs> it's, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a start. <laughs> and do you think rest is something that the more you practice it, the, the better you get? Is it a case of that? I think we don't really know how You're to right. do it as a culture. Uh, I, Claudia Hammond and the, the Wellcome Foundation did a, or is it the Wellcome Trust? Yeah, the Wellcome Trust. They did a, with the, it was a collaboration between the BBC uh, and the, the Wellcome Trust. They looked at how people rested. And the key finding there was that no two people rested in quite the same way. It was slightly different for uh, for everybody. For some people, it was being in nature. For some people, it was actually doing something physical, like going for a walk. That's how they switched into recovery. For other people, it was reading. And I've seen a similar thing in the clinic, and again in myself. I've had to learn what works for me. And so I've come to... Uh, realize that rest, recovery, pushing the reset button, it's a skill. Uh, I think joy is one of the keys. I think leaning into stuff that gives you a sense of joy, I think that's something I've learned to kind of go towards as opposed to seeing that as some kind of luxury or some kind of something frivolous. I've now begun to see it as a necessity. Yeah, surely just part of the human experience is to, is to play and have fun. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And and I think that the very way we frame it is kind of work versus play or kind of duty versus fun. It, that, that second term is almost always devalued, uh, according to the first. But I've come to see I, one of the mantras of the book is that work needs rest and rest takes work. You know, we need to work on that stuff that gives us the ability to do the, the dutiful. Yeah. And speaking from your own experience, but maybe patience as well, do you find that for me, I can, you know, sometimes I've, I, I want to rest in an evening um, and I might lie on the sofa and then I'll have my phone in front of me about like six inches away from my eyes and I'll just be scrolling right. through Instagram or YouTube or something like that. And it's like, well, my feet are up. So, you know, surely this is resting. But actually <laughs> after the two yeah. hours that I've spent scrolling, watching ridiculous videos and I get up and I don't feel any better. I don't feel any more rejuvenated. I don't feel like I've recovered. Um, so I don't know, do you, do you, do you see that as well? That Because <laughs> like, yeah. I think it made oh, me God, think of that yeah. when you said that we don't know how yeah. to rest. And I think some people are, are maybe, um, yeah, t turning to screens to rest. And of course that has its place, um, but maybe turning to other yeah. things as well, yeah. you know, foot up with, I don't know, some alcoholic drink or something like that. And, and that's what's been, um, you know, offered to us as a solution, as a, as a treat to, to recharge yeah. is to put your feet up and, and have some alcohol. Actually, maybe is this type of rest not always the best type of rest for each individual? Yeah. 
And I, I, one of the things I've learned from both the, the clinic myself and reading, actually, because uh, slight diversion, but Spinoza, the, the, the philosopher, has this really lovely idea in ethics that nothing is good and bad in itself. It's whether it's good or bad for us. And so I think one person's chilling out can be another person's kind of hypervigilant nightmare. Yeah. And I think some people maybe going to screens is restful and some people use screens for connection, mm-hmm. for recovery. I think some of us use it to kind of zone out, uh, like, like, like you were describing. And in the book, I talk about being stopped, but not really off. You've just kind of put the pause button on yourself, but you're not really switching into that really deep state of safety, recovery, rejuvenation. You've just pushed pause. And that's often what doing that thing with the screens feels like to me, for me. Mm-hmm. So I know if I put the screen down and actually uh, listen to an audiobook, read something re- rejuvenating that gives me a sense of, oh my God, that's a great idea. I really love finding another mind in a book. And it <laughs> seems it's becoming more difficult more and more difficult to read these days because it's so much easier to watch a screen or a, a telephone. But when I actually say start reading someone like Spinoza, it's like meeting this really great mind and it is actually rejuvenating for me. So I kind of try and lean into that a bit more. So yeah, it's figuring out what works for you. But again, I think that's an ongoing experiment that we should all commit ourselves to. I think the key thing is to value it. It's value, rest, recovery. And, and revitalization and figure out how to do it for yourself. Another f- phrase from the book is we become worn out when what is demanded of us exceeds our capacity. And, you know, this this is what we've already talked about already. But when I read that sentence, it makes me, makes me think of resilience. And resilience is something that I always mm-hmm. want to, to talk to psychologists about, like their, their view on, on, yeah. on resilience. Because, you know, another... Um, definition of stress that that we see is that stress is an imbalance between perceived demands and perceived our our perceived ability to cope and so I'm I'm wondering where does resilience come in into play here as in um, you know are we more or less resilient than than we used to be 50 years ago 100 years ago have we have we got a lower capacity to to cope nowadays you know is our have we got a lower perceived ability to cope um, what, do, what are your thoughts? So there's an anecdote in the, the book which is based on two colleagues of mine who let's just say they were working in the public sector and it was during austerity and they were being asked, like we all were at the time, to do more with less. Their support staff and their support structures were being decimated, they were having to do more literally with less support and they were beginning to wear out and these were very conscientious, highly skilled, high functioning people and being having a fair degree of agency in themselves and within the system, they went and asked their line managers, look, we're both really struggling here, we, we need some help and they were offered resilience training and that is my caveat around resilience and uh, someone put it this way and I've quoted them in the book uh, systems have weaponized resilience they've rather than see that we need some systemic change and people can only take so much we now turn it into an individual fault it's so I talk in the book about 
uh, idiocentric, i.e. locating it within the individual, idiocentric solutions to systemic problems. What those two people needed was more support and more staff, <laughs> as everybody in the NHS does at the moment. There was an article in the BMJ just the other day saying it's pretty clear that to stop people, we're trying to pull people out the river with resilience training, but what we actually need to do is stop them falling in the river in the first place by giving them more support. So although I think resilience can be a useful notion, I think it can be politically very dangerous because it, it can say, actually, this is your fault. You should. You just need to try harder. You just need to kind of, you know, bite your lip and get on with it. And often, actually, certainly the people I saw in friends, colleagues, and and in the clinic, they were already working at capacity. Telling them to work better or work more was just kind of adding insult to injury. So I'm quite suspicious of the the way resilience has been deployed in modern work culture. I think it's yeah. Uh, politically, potentially quite dodgy. Understood, understood. Okay, what about then the our approaches that we can take then to perhaps yeah. um, keep fatigue at bay? Or if we are experiencing it, then what are some of the things that we can put in place? Or is that even the right frame? Is that even how I should be wording the question? Or is that okay? <laughs> okay. Yeah. Because yeah, I realise no, we no, just think, said I it's not that, the individual responsibility. And here I am saying, <laughs> well, what do you need to do? <laughs> no, I, I think it's all, it's a dialogue between the two. And I think you do need to be careful of either saying it's the system or it's the individual. It's all always the interaction of both. And for me, it's always looking for what wiggle room do we have where is our agency within that? And if I can't change the work system, how can I change my relationship to it? What can I do? So, I mean, at a really basic level, I'm often helping people just change their basic circadian rhythm. So thinking about are you on all day without any off in that? So are you going from nine in the morning till five, expecting yourself just to keep going? Because we seem to have lost the habit of the coffee break, yeah. the lunch break, or we have this idea that we need to keep working through them. And we have lost that sense that it's okay to be off during work. So I, I, I was doing a sort of supervision group for a group of therapists, and we were talking about this and talking about how we felt guilty during the workday if we kind of switched off. And one of the therapists was saying, yeah, even when I have a, a, a client cancel and I know I've got a free hour, I feel I should be doing something else. And they went in to, to see a colleague in, a, in their adjoining office and they'd had a cancellation and they were watching Coronation Street on their computer. And the, the, the colleague was like, and they were like, why wouldn't I? I'd, I've got some downtime. I'm going to use it. And they were genuinely using that time to do that switching off and switching into rest and relaxation. And I'll bet they were better with their next client because they've yeah. done it. And so those kind of micro adjustments, I think, can be really in, important. Just looking at the the sort of flavor of your day and making sure there there is time for rest and recovery. And particularly when we're feeling pushed to our limits, making sure there is time for joy. Because I think joy is often the first casualty of stress that we think, I just need to get everything done that I need to get done. 
And there is nothing more exhausting than just being duty, recovery, duty, recovery. And we start dropping social stuff. We start, start dropping the stuff that gives us a sense of connection. And it's making time for that and actually moving some of the duty out of the way. So it goes back to what you were saying about demand and capacity. How can you decrease demand and how can you increase your capacity? And that second bit, increasing your capacity, it's almost always the stuff that gives you connection, joy, rest, recovery. So again, it's about valuing that and, and not seeing it as something you only do once everything else is out the way, but actually weaving it in to, to, to your your rhythm and your your daily life absolutely because like you said we we will then come out the other side of it being more productive we know that if we kind of have a little break from work and and get outside and go for a walk or we just chat to that colleague or something like that or or have a enough time for a run or a gym break that we come back and we're recharged and we're we're raring to go um so i suppose it's just about that kind of being disciplined enough to to remember that and 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 make it happen and i even put it in the put it in the planner put it in the diary that you can segment off this absolutely i think what you said about finding joy i mean it was one of my new year's resolutions was to to have more fun and i'm not doing that well at it already it's already been over a month but you know i want to it's not like i've got a particularly stressful job or anything i've got i haven't got a, a young family to look after or anything like that but I still, I still feel the kind of the that ambient hum of, of menace. I just feel that kind of um, yeah. the things are going on around me and that I've got to be on the go and, oh, you know, you, you only work part-time and then you're doing this other thing that you really enjoy. So, Sam, you don't really enjoy, you shouldn't, you don't really deserve a rest at the weekend because what have you been doing? You haven't been working hard <laughs> enough. So I, I still get that sense and, and, but at the same time, I want to, I want to rest yeah. and I want to find joy, but. I'm not sure where to look for it. Yeah. So I don't know. Have you got any recommendations? Is it another individual thing? I, I know, I, but where I do we find it, it? I think it comes back to that notion of valuing it. And also, like you were just really nicely illustrating, I think we all struggle with that. Do I really deserve to rest? Have I earned it? Uh, I, I, don't I need to do this before I do something frivolous? But, one of the, the the moves that I helped some uh, clients make over the years is to think about what do you value in the people that you love? And often what people value, I mean, what do you value in the people that you love, Sam? What, what are the qualities that the people you really care about uh, kind of, what attracts you to them? Um, so if I'm thinking about my family, they are just that they they're they're like an affectionate and they're protective and those are things that come up straight away like i i think we're quite a close yeah. family in that we're quite uh like tactile and we we hug each other and the nieces and nephews sit on everyone's laps and and that kind of thing and that is very that's very rejuvenating for me you know this sunday we went for a walk for my that's uh, lovely it, it was great we went for a walk for my brother's um birthday ended up in a pub and you know it was by a fireplace and we're all just talking and it i find that 
yeah, really, really um, relaxing. And I find it relaxing when when it's not too over the top as well. And too, we've got to have a really good time. I think yeah. why it was such a nice afternoon was there was no expectations. It was just, oh yeah, it was quite last minute. Let's go for a walk and pop to the pub. It wasn't like this huge thing. I mean, when we're talking about social anxiety mm. earlier, I don't like the the loud parties and and, and all that. It, 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 I don't find yeah. it particularly um, relaxing. Whereas something like that, where it's calm and we're just having conversation about the environment and diet and all these different things um so i don't know if i've an- properly answered the question but yeah the, that value of yeah oh no definitely calm yeah. and affectionate i suppose yeah yeah and and then think about how we value ourselves in, in that dilemma we were just talking about you know at the weekend we're, we're not going actually you're quite lovely as you are you're 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 warm you're affectionate you're a good person why wouldn't you deserve to rest so we often like if it was if it was a member of your family who came to you and said actually i don't think i can switch off this weekend because i haven't been productive enough you'd think it was ridiculous but we routinely do that to ourselves so it it sounds really almost like a kind of trick but i it works for me is thinking how can i value myself as i would someone i cared mm. about and learning to slightly re-script that relationship, and starting from the premise, uh, oh, this is this is kind of nineteen nineties Jennifer Aniston hair shampoo <laughs> advert, isn't it? Because you're worth it. <laughs> uh, some of the audience might not be old enough to remember that, but this notion of you don't need to earn rest, and also that it isn't a luxury; it's a necessity. You know, not putting it in the optional. If I've been good bracket but actually going this is what i need to do all the other stuff that i'm committing myself to doing so yeah something about valuing yourself something about reframing it as a necessity not a luxury that i think that has helped me and i've seen that help clients begin to lean into it oh this is it's it's been great talking to you vincent thank thank you so much for for coming on the show and i think so many people are going through this, aren't they? And so many people, it hasn't been the the one huge event, um, but it's just been that yeah. slowly, slow, slow, slow build up of events, smaller events, you know, perceived, perceived smaller events, and but also just the environment yeah. that we're living and working in that it is like so many people are feeling worn down by it. And I think when you speak yeah. from your experience and the work that you do the fact that you are a, a fatigue specialist this is this is your kind of this is your bread and butter and you are giving people permission to slow down and to recognize this in themselves and giving them you know tr- trying to encourage people to um reword how they how they talk to themselves like you said about you know we wouldn't we wouldn't talk yes. to our friends and family the way that we talk to ourselves about not deserving a rest and no no i haven't got time to to take a break we, we'd never say that to our friends and family so why do we say it to ourselves constantly mm. so I, I just think it's really really um yeah it's, it's just great to have you on and to, to share some of these ideas and perspectives i really appreciate it Oh, Sam, it's been a pleasure. I really enjoyed uh, talking nice to you. One. So I, I do finish um, every episode with three quick fire questions, if you're ready for those. Excellent. So yeah. the first one is, what's one lesson you wish you'd have been taught when you were a child? 
Uh, this is a very personal one, and it partly comes from just having been to see that beautiful new film, All of Us Strangers. And it's basically that things change because in that film you see someone who's a, a, a gay 40-something adult from contemporary times go back to the 1980s when it was not okay to be who he was. And if I could go back and tell my childhood self, look, it's going to be okay. Uh, society will evolve and you'll no longer need to be ashamed and hide who you are. And I think that message can generalize in lots of ways if we could go back and tell our younger selves, actually, things will change. Things that now look like weaknesses will become strengths. So it would be something along those lines. And what's one habit you've added to your life that's perhaps helped you feel happier and healthier? I th- I, w- I was thinking about this and the first thing that sprang to mind, so I'll go with it, is if I'm, particularly when I'm outside in the world, I make a point of trying to remember to look out and to look up. So rather than get involved in whatever nonsense is going on inside here, I try and just tune in to the world, the trees, the beauty, the colour, and that really works for me. It's just attention out, take my attention off of this and put it into the world. And the last one is, if you could give everyone in the world one book, which book would you give them? Slightly strange suggestion, but it is probably one of my favourite books. It's Moomin Valley in November by the children's author Tova Janssen and Finnish author. And it's not really a kid's book. It reads like, I don't know, it reads like Beckett or Chekhov. It's this motley crew of characters and you kind of see the way that each of their different psychologies makes them struggle with life and struggle with each other but it also has this beautiful kind of redemption where people learn to kind of accept themselves in each other and but it's a kid's book and it's written really simply and it's just one of the most psychologically insightful books you can find and it's like i don't know maybe 90 pages long it's lovely oh, that's lovely a great book. recommendation and i'm always trying to read more fi- fiction so i uh, i'm always glad when someone recommends that type of book that's great and of course talking of books people that have have listened to this and it resonates with them and they want to dive a bit deeper into into your story the work that you do and and the incredible amount of wisdom that is in this book how we break navigating the wear and tear of living where can people get their hands on a copy Uh, all good bookshops i think is the standard (laughs) answer and all good online uh, book sources so it yeah it just came out at the end of january and if you want a flavor of it have a just google my name and the title of the book and it's had some lovely reviews so far i've been very uh reassured by that because it did feel like i was putting myself into the world and it's nice for that gets a uh, you know a, a not unkind reception i can't even imagine what the feeling must be to have kind of poured your heart out and the amount of work that have gone into it as well and then to put it out there into the world it must be nerve-wracking and exhilarating in equal measure that's about <laughs> right yeah <laughs> and um social media are you on social media vincent are there any way that people can connect you or, or website or anything like that yeah i'm on i'm on twitter right, okay great yeah yeah so if people just uh, uh google vincent deary at twitter i'm there there is my full fantastic. name fantastic right well 
course, it's been an absolute pleasure to to chat with you. Thank you for your time again this evening. And yeah, I'll be in touch soon. Oh, oh thanks, Sam. I really enjoyed your chat. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in. I really hope you found my conversation with Vincent insightful. As always, if you enjoyed the episode, please do share it with friends, family and colleagues who you think would find it interesting too. And please also support the podcast by following and rating the show on whichever app you're listening on. Thanks again, and I look forward to bringing you another episode soon.